Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. We mentioned last week, Galatians for us at the beginning can feel a little bit tedious. The points that Paul is making for most of us are ones that we've already kind of signed off on, that he's an apostle and the things that he says are true, but it is important moving forward to have the foundation. So a little bit more of that uh, this week. Remember Galatians written by Paul to churches that he planted. They're primarily Gentile background believers. After Paul leaves these churches, remember he travels around, so establishes churches, leaves local leadership, and then he moves on to the next place. Some Jewish Christians have come in behind him, and they're teaching these baby Gentile Christians that they need to not just trust Jesus to be saved, but they also need to follow the Old Testament law. And one of the ways that they're trying to convince these churches that what they're saying is true is they're saying Paul is not really an apostle and the message that he preached is not really complete. It's not really the full gospel. And Paul in chapter one responds to that by saying, my calling came straight from Jesus and my gospel, the message that I preached, it also came straight from Jesus. He's, in a sense, establishing his independence from other human authorities. In a way, he's saying it really doesn't matter what other people say about my calling or about my message. Both of them came straight from heaven. That, that's what he's saying. In chapter 2, he pivots. So if you remember last week, uh, he gives this 14-year alibi. He says, I never went to Jerusalem. That's where you go. That's where the the mothership, that's where the, 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 the pillars of the church are in Jerusalem. I never went there. I was only there for, in 14 years, I was there for 15 days. I didn't even go to be taught, but just to get to know Peter. That's, a, that's the reason that I went, to get to know the leaders of, of the church. And there, there was no opportunity for them to form and shape what I've been preaching for these 14 years. As soon as I was called in Acts chapter 9, I got to work. And that, that's his... Is kind of his alibi. I was never where I would be to have received my gospel from another person. But now in chapter 2, he pivots. And he talks about when he actually does go to Jerusalem. There's a map there behind me. And Paul says, I was in chapter 1, he's like, I was never on that pink star, Jerusalem. I was only there for 15 days. I was in those other places, those yellow stars. That's where I spent all of my time. And now he's going to say, I, I returned to Jerusalem for the second time. And this, is, this was my response from, from the leadership. He wasn't going seeking their approval. That would undermine what he said in Galatians 1. He went seeking their agreement. Are you guys in agreement with me that this is what God is doing? And again, this may feel a little bit tedious. I want you to try to hear some of the emotion and urgency underneath it. It's a really big deal what Paul is talking about. It's taken for granted for us, but if things had gone a different way, then the church would look really, really different. There would be a Jewish church and there would be a Gentile church. There would not be one church. The, the question at hand is, does a Gentile have to become a Jew in order to be a Christian? That's, it's that level of significance. At this point, the church is maybe 16, 17 years old. That's it, still super young. Started in Jerusalem, almost all of the believers initially are, were Jewish, and they continued to follow the Jewish law even after they became Christians. Jesus was the, was the Messiah. He was Jewish. He fulfilled the Jewish law. He obeyed the Jewish law, so they just kept doing that. 
But in time, Gentiles began, began to come to faith, and it created this tension. The Gentiles have to become Jewish to be Christians. Remember, the, the Old Testament says, here's what it looks like to re- relate rightly to God. And then the Jews are going, this is what it says. And this is what we've always done. We've always gotten circumcised. We've always eaten kosher. We've never worked on the Sabbath. Like, this is what it means to be God's people. And that's creating tension with the Gentiles, particularly with Paul saying, well, they don't have to do any of that stuff. That's not what puts them in right relationship with God. And again, what's at stake is the, is, is the unity of the church. That's what is outwardly at stake. And the heart of it is what does it mean to be saved? What is the good news? Is it just Jesus or is it Jesus plus the law? So that's what's going on. We'll read through a few verses this morning and see if we can make a few connections for ourselves. Then after 14 years, so that's 14 years after his calling, which is in Acts 9, after his conversion and calling, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I've been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who is at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. So 14 years after his calling and conversion, Paul goes to Jerusalem a second time. If you're trying to connect Acts and Galatians, your two choices for this second visit are either the end of chapter 11, verses 25 through 30, or chapter 15. I think it's the end of chapter 11, primarily because Paul, this in Galatians 2, it's a private meeting. It's not public. It's like a private consultation. There's just a handful of people. Acts 15 is a very public council. And so I don't think that's it. I think what Paul is talking about in Galatians 2 was a meeting that he went to to try to iron out this Gentile question. They shake hands by the end, like they shake hands on an agreement, Peter and James and John and Paul, but it doesn't solve the issue. And so Acts 15 is, is the public addressing of this same issue that's not fully solved by the meeting in Acts 11 that Paul is referring to here in Galatians 2. I hope that wasn't too confusing. So Paul says he brings Barnabas and Titus. Why those two guys? Barnabas is a Jewish Christian, and he's a bridge. If you look at his life, he's, he connects Paul to the church in Jerusalem. Peter, James, and John trust Barnabas. And Paul has worked with Barnabas, so Barnabas trusts Paul. And so he's the connector between the two. As you, There's several stories in Acts, the verses are there behind me, you can look them up, where you see Barnabas playing that role of connector or bridge. It's not that there's animosity between Peter, James, and John and Paul, it's that they don't know each other. Again, Paul spent 15 days in Jerusalem with them. 
And prior to that, Paul was actively seeking to persecute the church, throwing Christians in jail and voting to kill them. So not necessarily a guy that Peter, James, and John spent very much time with. And so there's, no, there's not relationship there, and Barnabas is the bridge. Makes sense that he would come. Titus is a Greek. He's a Gentile. He's someone that Paul led to the Lord. He becomes one of Paul's most trusted co-workers. Why would he bring him? I think it's kind of like he's in Exhibit A. Here's Jerusalem leaders. Here's what it looks like for a Gentile to follow Jesus. Look at his life, the way God's worked in him and through him. It's a testimony, or again, it's an exhibit of what Paul is saying to be true, that God works in Gentiles even apart from them keeping the law. He goes in response to a revelation. In Acts 22, it was Jesus in a vision who told Paul to leave Jerusalem. So it would take something pretty significant for him to choose to return. Uh, In Acts 11, uh, I think about verse 25, a guy named Agabus, a prophet, he says there's going to be a famine. And so the churches where Paul is, outside of Jerusalem and Judea, they take up an offering to bring it back to the church in Jerusalem, which was always impoverished. They struggled with chronic poverty. And so it was not necessarily unusual. You'll see it throughout Paul's letters that he takes up collections from his churches money offerings and brings them to the church in Jerusalem to support those who are struggling there. And so it could very well be that the revelation he had was Agabus saying there's going to be a famine. And so Paul and Barnabas go back and bring a gift. I think it was more than that. I think it has to do with this Gentile question. And that's based on what Paul does when he gets there. In Galatians, he doesn't really talk about bringing an offering. What he talks about is presenting his gospel to Peter, James, and John. He lays his gospel before them for their consideration. That's what it means to present. Not for their approval. That would undercut everything he said in chapter 1. His gospel came straight from Jesus. He doesn't need anybody to bless it. But he's looking, he, he's, he wants to give them a first-hand account. This is what I'm actually saying. There's lots of rumors about what I'm teaching. Here's what I'm actually teaching. I'm teaching that Gentiles are reconciled to God solely by faith in Jesus, and that Jew and Gentile can come together as one new race. No longer Jew, no longer Gentile, but now Christian in one body. That's what I'm teaching. And what do y'all say about that? Again, not, not looking for approval, but looking for agreement. He says, I'm, I'm afraid. That's what your Bible may say. I, I'm, I'm afraid or lest I've run my race in vain. He, he's concerned, again, not that what he's doing is wrong, but that the church in Jerusalem will, is on a different page from him. And we'll see next week, if they had said to him, we disagree, he would have said, well, y'all are wrong about that, which is what he does in the next few verses that we'll look at next week. So that's, what he's, that's why he's going. There's this, a bit of a digression. People are trying to have Titus circumcised, and Paul says, we didn't give in to that. Why is that a big deal? Again, the... the What's, what's going on here is not a matter of opinion or preference or taste or going along to get along. It's the essence of what it means to be in a right relationship with God. He says, we stood fast or we didn't give in to them. And he uses espionage words. They were, trying, they were spies. They were trying to infiltrate. They were um, spying on us, our freedom in Christ. That's our, that's our freedom from the law. They were trying to make us slaves to the law again. And we didn't give in to any of that because we wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel for y'all. That's what's at stake for Paul. What is the good news? Is the good news we're saved by grace through faith only? Or 
We're saved by grace through faith plus obedience to the law. Which one of those two things is the good news? That's what's actually at stake here, and it's why he's taking it so seriously. So that's a bit of a digression where he's just reporting back to the Galatians. Look, I brought a Gentile with me, and he wasn't even forced to be circumcised, and he was in a meeting with Peter and James and John. So if they didn't make him get circumcised, why do y'all feel like you have to be? Why Don't let these guys who are in... We'll see this as we get farther into Galatians. There are people who are pressuring those believers to be circumcised and as a sign of following the law. And Paul's saying Titus was in Jerusalem. He was in the, in the heart of this kind of Jewish-soaked Christianity with Peter and James and John. And he wasn't even forced to be circumcised. So there's no reason for you guys to have to go down that road. And then he gives just some bullet points. Here's what happened in the agreement. And again, it's informal. It's just handshake, right hand of fellowship. Just, they shook on it. They affirm Paul as an apostle and they affirm the gospel that he's preaching. It says they didn't, they didn't add anything, and that's important. They didn't add anything to my message. What, what people were saying about Paul is he had removed something essential. The law is essential, and he took it away. And what Paul is saying is they didn't add anything back. The message that I've been preaching to you, Galatians, is sufficient. There's there's nothing lacking there. You only have to trust in Jesus to be saved. You don't have to follow the law. And they affirmed his calling. They said, just like Peter is called to be an apostle to the Jews, so Paul is called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. They they recognize those two guys. They have different spheres of ministry. Primarily among Jews, the circumcised for Peter. Primarily among Gentiles, the uncircumcised for Paul. But their callings are equally valid. There, there, there's a, there's a, there's a, a leveling there. Paul and Peter are both equally called to do this work. It looks a little bit different because the audiences that they're speaking to are different. But there, there's, there's validity in both of those things. Authenticity in both of those callings. And then they say, when Paul says it, and by the way, they just told me to remember the poor, which is the very thing I've been doing. That's why he went, was to bring an offering to the poor. And again, as you read his later letters, he continues to, um, to organize collections to send back to the church in Jerusalem as a sign of solidarity and kind of brotherhood with these, uh, with these believers who are struggling. So again, for us... We're kind of going, you know, wonk, wonk. Like what, what, is, what are the connection points for us? We believe, most of us, that yes, I get it. Paul is an apostle. He wrote half of the New Testament. We see that as true and right and from the Lord. What are the connections for us? And I wanna, I'm going to kind of bounce off of Galatians a little bit, um, just using one sentence. And I, I'm, I'm hoping that we can hear some of the emotion and concern underneath and behind that sentence and connect that to some places in our own life. When Paul says, um, I was afraid that or uh, I was concerned lest I run my race in vain. So that, that's a phrase that Paul uses several times, running a race, and it's a metaphor, and you know it's a metaphor f- uh, for. Uh, it's, it's, it, it speaks to labor, to striving, to struggling, to live your life in a certain way. God's laid this course out before me, and I want to run that race. I want, to, I want to walk in the path that God has made for me, created for me. 
And there is, a, there, again, the, the, the idea of running the race, there's a level of effort involved in that. And then to do something in vain means there's no result. There's no fruit. That nothing comes of it. So what Paul is saying is I'm, I'm apprehensive about the results of my work here. He's not apprehensive about the message that he's preaching. Again, that would undermine everything he said in Galatians 1. And as you read through his letters, he never has any questions about the gospel. He is dead set on we're saved by grace through faith. He never wavers on that. So that's not what's at that's not where the apprehension is coming in. The apprehension is I'm laying this before Peter, James, and John. I don't know how they're going to respond. Not are they going to say you're wrong because then he would say, no, actually you're wrong. The, 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 the apprehension is coming with is will they agree that this is what God is doing? Will they agree with me that we don't need to have two churches? We don't need a Jerusalem church and a Gentile church. We don't need a church based in Jerusalem that's Jewish and a church based in Antioch that's Gentile. Jews and Gentile background believers can both come together in one church, capital C. There's one body. Yes, there were two races. Everyone was either a Jew or a Gentile, but now in Jesus there's a third race, a new race of Christians, regardless of people's background. Will they agree with that? Will they accept all of these believers who are not following the law. That's what he's wanting to know. And, he's, and he, there's genuine concern for him before he gets to Jerusalem. Again, they've only spent 15 days together. And just like people are saying bad things about Paul, we don't know this, but we can assume Paul was getting bad information. Uh, uh, people were, were giving him bad information about what Peter, James, and John were saying. This group of Jewish Christians, the party of the Pharisees, they're called, the party of the circumcision, they're called, they're stirring up trouble. And again, they're, they're telling things, they're saying things in Jerusalem that are not true about Paul. And probably they're telling Paul things that are not true about Peter, James, and John. We don't know that, but it wouldn't be a stretch to think that. So Paul goes back and he's like, I genuinely don't know. Like, I, I really don't know. Everything I've been working for for these past 14 years, is it going to be for nothing? Is the result of this private meeting with Peter, James, and John going to be two churches instead of one. Again, Paul's not going to compromise his message. That's not what's at stake. But this effort, this struggle to bring Jews and Gentiles together in one body, that's what's at stake for him. What I hear is potential regret. That's what I hear in him. Am I going to look back over my last 14 years and go, man, I wasted. Like that was wasted effort, wasted energy. It was all, all for nothing. Regret is a, it's a feature of the human experience and condition. Regret is fear, feelings of sadness or disappointment over things done or undone. There are people who study it, probably a semi-depressing field, but people who study Regret, they say that most people, twice, you're twice as likely to regret not doing something as you are doing something. Does that make sense? You're twice as likely to regret kind of a road not taken than a road taken that doesn't necessarily work out the way that you want it to work out. And again, these guys that study it, they list four broad categories of regret, and those are on the screen behind me. They're, they call them 
foundational regrets or or regrets around building a stable life. I wish I would have saved more for retirement. I wish I would have quit smoking. I wish I would have started exercising or eating healthier sooner. Those things that kind of, that, that provide that stable, secure foundation for your life. I wish I would have done those things, either done them or done them sooner. They're moral regrets. And we as Christians would put that in the category of sin. We did the wrong thing, we didn't do the right thing. And regrets around those choices, and those are pretty easy for us to connect to. There are, they call them boldness or opportunity regrets. I wish I would have taken the, the leap to leave that job sooner. I wish I would have gone back to school. Those types of things. I wish I would have taken that trip or that internship or whatever, those chances that sometimes we pull back from. And then relational regrets, are the, the, those are the most common, whether that's relationship with a spouse, with parents, with kids, with your friends, wishing that we would have done different within those relationships. And I'm wondering if y'all can put some bullet points from your own life underneath those categories. You may not have a regret in every one of those, but I bet you have a regret in at least one of them. And the, the older you are, honestly, probably the more bullet points that you have. The more choices that we make, the more opportunity we have to make a good choice or a bad choice. The, the older we are, the accumulation of missed opportunities can, can kind of increase. So there's this, this line of thinking in our culture that says you can live regret-free. That's a lie. Straight up, you can't. There is no such thing as a regret-free life if you're an adult. You can't. To live a regret-free life means that you bat a thousand with your decisions. Anybody? No. (laughs) Fallen people living with other fallen people in a fallen world. There's going to be decisions that we make. Some of those are sinful. Some of those are just decisions. And the the result is going to be something other than what we want. That causes sadness and disappointment. Now, there are other people who kind of the regret-free living crowd. What they say is just basically kind of follow your bliss, pursue your passion, do what's in your heart. Which, again, that works if your heart happens to be perfect. Or if you're a sociopath and you don't have any remorse for bad decisions. We don't fall in either of those categories. Certainly not the perfect one and hopefully not the pathological one either. It's part of being a person is experiencing regret. And that doesn't at all diminish the goodness or the power of God. Again, it's just the reality that he hasn't made us perfect yet. He hasn't made our loved ones, our neighbors perfect yet, and he hasn't made our world perfect yet. There will be a day when there's no regret. And you can read about it in Revelation 21 and 22. We're just, we're not there yet. And so as people, we are going to experience sadness and disappointment over things done and undone. It's not always rooted in sin. Hear me. Just because you're experiencing regret doesn't mean that you sinned at some point. It could. 
Your regret could be the result of sin, but it's not necessarily the result of sin. So there's a couple of things we can do. We're going to live with regret. That's depressing. Glad you got up and fought traffic to bought the parking lot to get here today to hear that. But there are some things we can do to minimize as followers of Jesus. One is to recognize we're followers of Jesus. This has been our theme for the year. He's a good shepherd. We're sheep. He leads us in right paths. If we will discipline ourselves to seek him at points of decision, then he will lead us. And that can minimize regret. He does bat a thousand. His heart is perfect. And he desires to, again, lead us in the right paths for his namesake. And so for most of us, it's just the discipline of actually seeking and asking him around decisions that sometimes don't really feel spiritual. It's kind of like that's not stay in your lane, Jesus, and this isn't it. He's, he's got all of them. All of it says. We'll see this in a few months, uh, probably months. Galatians 5, Paul says, this is, this is what counts. You can memorize this one sentence. This is what counts. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. You can remember that. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. There are times where there's not a clear way forward. You're, you're choosing between multiple goods. There's not a good and a bad. And so maybe some, one of the, the, the litmus tests or the grids that you can use for discer- determining what decision am I going to make is, is this an expression of faith? Am I trusting Jesus? And is it trust that's expressing itself in love, whether that's love for him, which is obedience. But if you don't have a clear direction, then what does obedience look like? Love for others, doing what's best for them. Is this a decision where I'm trusting Jesus that expresses itself and doing what's best for somebody else? Regardless of how that works out, you're probably not going to regret doing it. You're probably not going to regret a decision where you were genuinely trying to trust Jesus and do what's best for someone else. Again, regardless of the, the results of that decision you're probably not going to feel disappointment or sadness that you chose faith expressing itself in love. Those are two ways that maybe we can begin to minimize regret, but we can't eliminate it completely. So how do we deal with it? How do we deal with regret? The first two things I would say are to acknowledge and to grieve, which many of us, we just don't do. And I don't know if it's because we have a lot going on and we're just kind of plowing through our day. I don't know if it's pride. I don't know, I don't know why. I don't know if we if it feel if we feel like uh, well this is my fault and so I just need to own I just kind of have to live with it. I don't know what it is, but for most of us, we don't take time to acknowledge and grieve the sadness and the disappointment over things done and undone, whether those are things we've done or things that have been done to us. And again, the older you get, the the the, the more of these things start to kind of pile up in the backpack. And if you're not bringing them to the Lord, then that backpack can get really, really heavy. And it can be difficult to move forward in life because you're carrying the regrets of your teen years and your 20s and your 30s. And, your, you know, it's just, it begins to grow. So what would it look like just before the Lord? God, I don't love this. This didn't work out the way that I wanted it to work out. I'm not blaming you. I'm just saying, this is not 
this is not the life I thought I would have. Or this is not the job I thought I would have. This is not the body, health, that I thought I would have. This is not where I thought I would be. And that, like, there's a loss there for me. This is what I thought and this is reality and they're not the same. And so I'm acknowledging that before you. And, and I want to grieve. A lot of times when we think of grief, we think, well, that's just what you do at a funeral for someone you're really close to. Yes, but there's, there's more. Anytime there's a loss, grief is an appropriate response. You don't have to weep and wail over every loss, but there is something to say, is there anything actually happening in here relative to that loss? And maybe there is some emotion that needs to be expressed to the Lord. And as you're acknowledging, that emotion will either be there or it won't, and it's okay. There's not a right or wrong there. It's just giving, your chance, giving yourself the opportunity to grieve. Again, what you're doing is trying to take stuff out of the backpack that you've been carrying around, these regrets. You don't want them to pile up because they will weigh you down, make it difficult for you to move forward. So acknowledge and grieve, that's kind of the net, that's, that's taking it from here and putting it out here. And then if you're already here, then let's receive what the Lord has for you. Mercy and hope. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. That's one way of thinking of mercy. So don't necessarily, we won't, sometimes we think of mercy, we think of it only in the context of punishment. Well, I, we reap what we sow. Absolutely. God, would you be merciful? I, can I not reap what I sow on this? He's merciful. He's merciful. God, I don't want to reap what they sowed. Can you be merciful? That's what I need in this. I acknowledge this is, and and sometimes that acknowledgement is a confession of sin. Sometimes regrets are rooted in our sinful choices, 100%. And if so, we need to confess that. But that's not always the case. But what we're asking for regardless is mercy with, and then hope. Hope, confident expectation of a better future. God won't change the past. He doesn't do that. But he will redeem it in the present and the future. And so that, that's what we're going for. It can be difficult to live with the pain of a bad choice from your past. Or for some, again, that's what regret is. What God can do, he's not going to change that choice. He's not going to suddenly make a bad choice a good choice. But he can redeem that in the present and in the future. And that can lead to hope. A confident expectation of that better future because Jesus has been raised from the dead. We're going to take communion as we close. And it's a great picture. That, that was the, the greatest injustice ever was the cross. And we see what God the Father brought from that. An empty tomb. Resurrection. Life with a capital L. As you take communion, break off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. My hope is that we're going to walk through a few prayers together. Is that you'll be bringing whatever those regrets are. Leaving them here. And taking back with you a reminder of the provision that the Father has made. For all of that sadness and for all of that disappointment from all of those things done and undone. In a broken and fallen world, which is where we live, this is vital. It's vital. 
I don't know how else to deal with those regrets. You either have to ignore them or carry them around. Neither one of those is great. As a believers, you have a third option, which is bringing them to your father who cares deeply about those things, who is in heaven and can actually do something about those things. There's not a better one to bring them to. And so I want to encourage you to do that. Um, after you take communion, we'll have ministry teams, and they're going to have these little bowls of water. It's not just, it's just tap water. And they're going to make a cross. If, if you want, everybody doesn't have to stop by these ministry teams. But if there's a sense for you, if you're feeling some level of regret today, just stop by. And you can, if you're willing to, you can say, I feel regret in this area. You don't have to unpack the whole thing. But you can just give them one word if you want to. And they're going to make a little cross on your hand. And just say, be cleansed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Which is not putting guilt or shame on you because you sin. Nobody's saying that. It's just a recognition that sadness, disappointment, we want to see the Lord just kind of wash that off of you. And for hope to be restored to you. Again, you don't have to stop by those teams, but I would encourage you to do so if you're feeling some level of regret this morning. And at some point, we all will. Again, it's just the human condition living as fallen people in a fallen world. So if you're helping with communion or ministry, if you come forward and get your spot, I'm going to ask everybody else to stand up and we're going to read a few uh, prayers together and then I'll let you sit back down as you wait to take communion. But just uh, stand up if you wouldn't mind. All right, so we're going to read that first from father to the colon and then we're going to Just take, we'll internally think through things done and things not done. And then we'll just say those three sentences uh, after that. So let's start with that first word, Father. Father, I acknowledge the following areas of regret in my life. So close your eyes if you would. Is there anything that you've done that you regret? You can just acknowledge those things to the Lord. Anything he's bringing to mind. If it's a sin, confess it. Otherwise, just acknowledge it. What about things undone, not done? Anything that you're looking back and you regret, kind of the road not a road not taken. Again, it may have been a sin. You need to confess that it may just be an acknowledgement. All right, I want us to just prayerfully say these next three sentences. Where I've sinned, I repent. Where I've been sinned against, I forgive. For what has been lost, I grieve. And now just a few acknowledgments or declarations. All of these are taken out of Romans. Father, I acknowledge that there is now no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ Jesus. Father, I acknowledge that in all things you work for the good of those who love you, who have been called according to your purpose. Father, I acknowledge that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, 
nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. You guys can have a seat. I'll say a brief prayer and then y'all can respond to communion and ministry as you feel that. Holy Spirit, I do pray that for everyone in this room, kids, students, adults, anyone who right now would say, yeah, there's, there's regret in my life, that they would experience the cleansing reality of your love, of your mercy, that you would stir hope where there's not hope, that we would all know that our regrets, things done or not done, can't separate us from the great love that you have for us. So as we take communion, would you pour that love more fully and completely into our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 